Welcome to the Maximu Theater and Performance Podcast. On today's episode, we discuss six shows currently playing beyond Broadway in New York City. If you're concerned about spoilers, there are time codes on the episode page at maximu.com. There you'll also find links to more information and where to buy tickets. Enjoy the show. Okay, uh, let's start with introductions. David. Hey, this is David Levy. Uh, now, this is David Levy from the new podcast, Soundtrack Song by Song, which you should go check out. And what is your first series about? Uh, the season one is subtitled Grease 2 is also the word, and it's exploring the songs from the movie musical Grease 2. And where can people find your podcast? Wherever you get podcasts, we are everywhere. We're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on Google Play, we're on all sorts of platforms that didn't even know existed before last week. Awesome. All right, Deep. Wait, you can plug your own stuff here? Yeah. Huh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Tell us anything you want that you have going on. Uh, It's too early for this. Um, Hi, I'm Deep Tran, Associate Editor at American Theatre Magazine. And I'm Lindsay from Maximu. So I have a quick correction from last week's, or not last week, two weeks ago, September preview episode, where I talked about Underground Railroad game. Mm -hmm. And one of the co-artists from that contacted us that I had misdescribed his initial engagement with the Underground Railroad game that I talked about that they played in school. I thought he had been a teacher. That's how I interpreted the press release. That is incorrect. He was a student in that environment. And based on the interview, it's in the New York Times, that's an important distinction because it sounds like the theater production is quite critical of that. So I'm sure he did not want anyone to think that he had a role in creating it. So he experienced that as a student. We're still looking forward to that and going to be talking about it in a couple of weeks. Thanks to him for reaching out and sending us that correction. Okay, so we're going to talk about shows we've seen recently. We have a fantastic lineup. I'm very excited. I have a lot of things that I've been wanting to discuss. In fact, David and I were just cheating a little bit and pre-discussing one of the shows and doing some investigation (laughs) on it. (laughs) So let's get started. Deep. Okay, I'm supposed to introduce Caught to You but by Christopher Chen, currently playing at La Mama in a production by Play Company. But this is one of those plays where it serves you best if you don't know anything about it going in. Mm-hmm. And so if you've already seen it, this is going to be a f- great fun for you. But if you haven't, you might want to skip it because we're going to go far. And yeah, it's and I'll ruin be sure it. to put time codes in yeah. the write-up so you can skip to the appropriate point if you do not want to hear this discussion. Yeah. So, bye-bye, people who have not seen this play. Uh, basically, Caught is by the San Francisco writer named, named Christopher Chen, and I'm just going to go through the linear progression because that's the way, best way to do this. It opens up with a Chinese artist named named Limbo who was jailed in China for creating a piece of provocative art. He was jailed by a Chinese government, which is a thing that happens in real life. And he's, pre- he's presenting it in the form of a TED Talk about his experiences. Uh, scene two is about... He's in this um, discussion with to New Yorker editors, editors slash reporters, and they had done a a story about him. And it turns and then it turns out that the story that the story he told about being in jail was false. And it also turns out that he's not really a 
Chinese artist from China. He's from Los Angeles. So there's that. And then the third scene, it, it turns out that the previous two scenes were a construction by this other Chinese artist named Wang Men, who is using it as a critique of American obsession with truth and authenticity and how facts are different or different mediums require different levels of factual accuracy and things get complicated when you mix mediums and they reference Mike Daisy's agony of X and the XCFC of jobs that whole scandal within that context uh and also critiquing how Americans like like to believe that we're so much more caring about outside cultures than we actually are, which is fantastic. Jennifer Lee was in this scene. It was great. I, I had a great time. <laughs> and then the next scene, I, I know it keeps on going. And then, <laughs> and then the next scene, it turns out that Wang Min isn't actually an artist from China. And this is and that and th those three scenes previously were were was an art piece inspired by an artist friend of a former lover of hers who was a Chinese artist whose name I do not recall. You wrong. Yeah. He, 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 he filters in, he comes in and out of the, um, as, as, some, as someone that they, that they talk about in the previous three scenes. So it kind of weaves in that way. And it turns out that, that her and Lin Bo, the, or the actor who is playing the artist named Lin Bo, it, there's, there's a lot of different levels here, and it's Sunday morning, folks. <laughs> <laughs> there were, it turns out that they, were, that they both were lovers of you wrong, and they, they did not know it. So now the question is, how, how much do you really know about this person that you've spent a good amount of your life with and were really intimate with? And then the entire play ends with one final scene saying, everything you just saw was a dedication to our artist, our artist friend Yu Rong who died in, in a Chinese prison. So hopefully you got that all sounded, made sense. Um, uh, can I just add that sure. one further layer, which is actually before the oh, performance right. even starts. Yeah, that thing. On your way in, you're handed a card that says that this production is a collaboration with uh, some gallery, which Xiong. is presenting the art of Limbo and you walk through an installation art piece uh, by Limbo or is it? Yes. <laughs> and which is actually a real art piece that someone that an artist whose name I Yao Jackson. Yes. He actually did. It's basically a jail cell and you rent and he put it on Airbnb and rented out to people for a dollar a night which sounds like a, a steal really in the New York City <laughs> real estate situation. So they, they, they use that jail, that jail cell as the installation for the art for Lin Bo's installation. So, and then you realize, and then you don't, you don't, get, you don't get the program until the very end of the show. So you basically walk in thinking everything this guy's saying is true, and then, and then the layers just unpack itself as you're watching the play. So it's just really, um, well, actually, I, 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 can, I can only talk about it in the context of how I, I saw it, which is I wrote a New York Times piece about it, so I've already read the script and seen a reading. And so I had a completely different experience than what everyone else around this table probably had because reading 
reading reading it on the page is a lot different, I think, than seeing it live. And so when I was reading it on the page, I just had this. It was more of an intellectual ex- exercise of, oh, so this is n- none of this is true. And I kind of thought it was, but this is interesting. And I feel like the effect is magnified when you're seeing it as part of an installation that you thought was real in the first place. And I think and I. For me, it comes off as more of a cerebral exercise. There's not that much emotional engagement, which is complete, which is completely fine. Not all the theater needs to be emotional, and it and it was a really, it's a really hard thing to talk about. No, it it sometimes feels like it's being clever for the sake of being clever, and rather than really because. You, they present these really like juicy concepts of like American exceptionalism and how we like to appeal like, appear like we're better than the rest of the world, but they don't really dig deep enough deep into it enough because each scene only lasts twenty minutes, and so they introduce these concepts, and you, you're not really tangling it with enough as an audience to to really grapple with it yourself, and and each scene tackles something different like the first scene tackles dissident dissidents within china and chinese censorship the second scene tackles authenticity and the third scene tackles like american like american perceptions of the world and the fourth scene is really about like your own perception of your own life and so it comes it goes so fast that i'm just engaging with it on a surface level i'm not thinking really deeply about it but and i also think the fourth scene is unnecessary i think and i i feel like there's just so much that you, that you were that they were talking about within the previous three scenes that the fourth scene of, of like bringing it back to the personal it didn't it it was it started out as something that didn't quite belong there but i really do enjoy this play though because it's it's really rare that you have a piece of work that really like upends your expectations of what a theatrical experience should be or like what you should expect as an audience. And I and being so we're not surprised very much these days, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's really nice to just be genuinely like have have like the wool lifted and realizing, oh my god, everything that I've been told is a lie, and I kind of like it. Yeah. What was so. your experience seeing it, David? Well, so I remembered that art piece. From when it got all the coverage in the press, it was only a year or two ago. So walking in, the Airbnb art piece yes, is what you're talking about. Yeah. So yeah. walking in, and I have no idea about the gallery scene in New York. So I have no idea if the gallery listed on the on the little handout is a real gallery or it's not. Not right. So I, <laughs> so it seemed totally legitimate to me that this theater company and this gallery could be collaborating on a piece based on this real art piece that I remember getting a lot of press coverage. And I thought, oh, that's so cool. And I didn't remember the name of the artist, so. I was totally with them when the first scene claimed to be an artist talk by this artist introducing the play. Um, For me, it started to unravel a little bit in the second scene because suddenly you have this person who is supposed to be a real person now being a character in a drama about him, which, okay, like we're in a postmodern world. I get that. That's I'll, I'll, I'll roll with that. Um, but the director, Lee Sunday Evans, who um, I think my only previous experience with her was uh, A Beautiful Day in November on the banks of blah, 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 which was that women's theater project mm-hmm. show that had like a Thanksgiving dinner staged as a football game. Um, so that was a good show. I like that show. Yeah. It was uh, weird. It was weird. It was very cartoony. And in the second scene of this play that was at the New Yorker office, 
as the conversation gets more heated, she dials up the sense of melodrama and slowly and subtly um, a soap opera style soundtrack comes in and all of a sudden we're in a cartoon. And at that moment, I was just like, what? Um, (laughs) Because because suddenly I felt like instead of a play that was playing with our perceptions of reality, we were outside of reality. Um, Which is, I think, is a point because it's in in the script. It says you have to yet. This needs to become more melodramatic. And here's where the music comes in. Okay, so so, there's that. So so that really kind of unsettled me in that moment. And I spent a lot of that scene sort of trying to decide if I was with it or not. Mm. Um, and then in the, the next scene, which was the, um, the fake artist talk back, which again was staged as though it was a real talk back for the play that we had just seen. Um, and of course at this point I'm like, okay, I get what this play is doing. This is clearly a scripted scene and not a talk back, obviously. Um, but the people around me were not there. <laughs> um, I found, uh, Oh gosh, Leslie Frey, I think, was the 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 white actress who was um, playing one of the actors from the second scene, doing the talkback with the artist. Mm-hmm. Um, she just she reminded me so much of Amy Poehler um, in that she also sort of got this like a- as the scene got more intense and she got more frazzled, it felt more cartoony again. And every time it went to a cartoony place, uh, for me, it sort of undermined this. Um, this reality play that that the first half of the scenes seem to be doing so well, and I I get that that may have been the point. Yeah. Um, but it just I I don't know. It kind of it, it sort of took the air out of the second halves of those scenes for me. Um, I think before I, I before I would have liked to have that happen because there was a lot of scene left. Um. Yeah, I also didn't love the fourth scene, but I understand why it was there. Um, part of what I didn't love about it is that it was just staged so far back that it, for something that was supposed to be very personal and intimate, it actually felt the furthest removed and much more like watching a play instead of watching people, which, again, is part of the point because it was simultaneously like the sort of like the least theatrical in the sort of like Brechtian version of theatrical, but also... Um, like the most like watching a traditional naturalistic play. So, so I get why it was done that way, but I, I would have, I felt like it was a little bit harder to engage with these people and their emotions because they were so far back and, and so quiet and understated and removed. That's interesting. So my experience seeing this play is that I did not go with the expectation of talking about it on the podcast. I went because a friend of mine who is the chair of the board at the play company, which I suppose is a small uh, possible conflict of interest disclosure, invited me to go see it. And I knew that Deep had written about it. Indeed, I had scanned your article and like retweeted it. I knew that the playwright was like super cute and charming based on Deep's <laughs> article, and I was interested in it, but I thought that its opening date didn't align with our podcast recording, so unfortunately, I did not think we'd be able to cover it. So I went knowing that it was this like kind of special night for the board to see the play, and that influenced my entire viewing of the play, which everything that happened I thought was like an exception for the evening, <laughs> including the very beginning <laughs> 
the way that a representative of the play company introduces the play, I was like, oh, that's special. And then I heard the, the, the talk by the artist, and I was like, this is very interesting. And, um, oh, my God, they fooled you. And then I hook, line, and sinker every time. Every time. So then I was like, okay. Oh, that's so, that's but so no, funny. I got like that the artist talk, the first artist talk was like the play. I get that. I'm mm-hmm. not like, the, it's not like the first time I've been to the theater, right? But then I was like, okay, now we're having a scene. And then the scene melted down. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. I love it. This is so like surprising. And I just, everything about it, like the cartoony nature of it to me just made me feel comfortable that I was watching the theater. And then it was like, and that's the end of the play, applause. <laughs> and now we're having an artist talk back. And then I was like, oh, it wasn't until halfway through when it started to devolve again where I was like, this is also for. I mean, I'm you didn't just think like, so boy, that was a really short play. I did. I did think that. And I was like, I, and then I thought, I fucking Wait. love a short play. <laughs> Wait, you didn't recognize Jennifer Lee? I, I didn't. I I know. So stupid. Um, and then there's the fourth scene, which you guys have commented on as being kind of perhaps potentially superfluous to the play. And at the time, I also agreed. In retrospect. I think that's actually the scene that I've spent um, a lot of time thinking about because it brings the broad concepts of truth that this play is examining and how difficult it is to identify the truth. Is that even a concept that one should believe in? Um, What is the true truth versus some kind of emotional truth? And is even the concept of a true truth the like American Fox concept, right? And in the final scene, what you have is two individuals that have a personal truth that is their lived experience, and yet if, in, and yet are in complete opposition to one another. Um, If one is true, almost by definition, the other person's truth can't be true, and yet both of them are true, and so also both of them are false. And to me, it, in a way, and and maybe it was the staging, or, or 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 maybe there is a something about that scene that doesn't quite work. But for me, it distills the entirety of the play down to this very personal realization on behalf of the, you know, quote unquote characters in the play. And it has really stuck with me as I examine the, the preceding scenes about how these concepts, while they are intellectually interesting and uh, provide for a great dinner conversation, and indeed I went to dinner after the show, we had a great conversation about you know the concepts of truth and Mike Daisy and all that, and yet when you are challenging the truth that is your lived experience, that is incredibly personal and fraught with emotion. Um, so I actually have grown to appreciate that scene quite a bit. This show is, I thought, so good. When I walked out, I just, I was like, I don't care when it opens or closes, and thank God it extended so our conversation could inform other people to go see it. Um, Although we hope that you're not listening if you haven't seen it yet. <laughs> because we have truly spoiled every element of the show for you. Um, I have a million questions about this show. In fact, just before we started recording, David and I were like pouring through the script, and David was on Google, like looking up each artist, trying to find out who's real, who's false, like, what, what, where are, and this is like so being caught 
caught caught. in the in the narrative of the play which is like what's true about this play like i need to know like i have a million questions like i want to grab why do you why do you need to know that's the point why do you need to know western upbringing is horrible it's it's only legitimate if it's true like this artist's name was you wrong that just sounds like it's telling us that we're wrong But, but we looked it up and that's that's a real chinese name although not a Chinese artist that died in a prison. Exactly. And not the one in this play. I mean, it's such a web, and I find it so fascinating, and I, I want more. I want to investigate this piece further, and, like, I really want to go back. If I could find a reasonably priced ticket, which they're not actually that expensive to begin with, but my theater budget's quite low, like, I would go see this play in a heartbeat a second time, because, in part, because of the way I saw it the first time, and where I was just, like, constantly sucked in and suckered. <laughs> like, I want to go and watch it with a pair of jaded eyes. I also want to say that the day that I went, there was a talk back after the, like a real talk back. Right. Um, so How do you know it was real? Well, cause, <laughs> because what, because it was hosted by David Henry Wong, and I know what he looks like. And was the Christopher Chen the actual Christopher Chen or the one referenced in the script at the end? It was the same guy who there's a picture of in Deep's article. So, <laughs> Is Deep part of the conspiracy? Are you here right now, a hologram? But on behalf of I'm not really from California guys (laughs) I never stay for talkbacks if I can avoid it but of course I stayed for this because of all the shows to stay for talkback this is the one you want to stay for I couldn't believe that half the audience left and of course even before the talkback started someone from the play company had to assure people that this was like actually a talkback and not more of the show and it's okay to leave I can imagine that was a hilarious (laughs) and even with that the people sitting next to me were convinced that we were watching like the fifth scene of the play oh I would I mean I would have just been like what's happening I know I went with a friend uh, and they said at the end they said oh there's a talk back and then he's like is the show over because I read the script and so I'm like yes it's over we can leave now (laughs) (laughs) but I do miss not being able to have that experience that Lindsay had because I only had it just via reading the script and I feel like it would have been so much more fun just seeing it on on the stage like cold for the first time but i think i because i i think my issue is with it is and and it is a really good play like i love i first read in 2014 and so i really loved all the different things that he was grap that he was grappling with and all the different concepts of truth i think it's it's like base i i've categorized in my head as truthiness to the play Mm -hmm. oh yeah that word occurred to me as well (laughs) yes or trump or trump Trumpiness. That's what Chris and I were talking about when we uh, when we when I interviewed him. But I didn't. Th- my issue is, I think it's just because like the Mike Daisy scandal. Like it was such a big deal in the world of the theater, and people are still talking about it. And and I just feel like you. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the best way to phrase this, but. I just, I because what Chris is trying to do is like cre- like critique like our general obsession with truth and ha- and when one part of it unravels, then like we the entire thing is negated, kind of like what happened with Mike with the Mike Daisy story, and I, 
and I think like there's something really valuable there for us as an audience to grapple with, like within ourselves and not just as an, as a stimulating intellectual exercise at theater where we're completely fooled. I think like there is some there is something valuable about like really interrogating like the things that we read and why we read those things and and why we are attracted to certain voices within our, you know, our cultural or the or journalistic voices or even the people that we're voting for like why are we attracted to that and so there's so many there are so many great concepts that he brought up that just like slipped by so quickly that i think like not a lot of, not a lot of people in the audience really thought about it very hard after they left and i'm not entirely sure if that was true for the two of you that's so funny because if I had one critique, it would almost be the exact opposite, which is that I feel like he had a point of view and a perspective and a critique, and he kept hammering it home over and over and over in each scene. And I got to the point where I was like, I get it, all right. The truth is hard to identify and define. So I don't know, actually. I think I might feel the opposite. Really, but I don't really think it's about like how hard it is to define. It's it's also about like our own personal biases of like why we define our lives in these way and why our our opinions define in this mm -hmm. way and how much of it is influenced by like our own you know privilege. Awesome word about the, the yeah other. yeah no. I mean those are all yeah. that's the tentacles I feel like that flow from the large question. But right, but like I don't really th know how much of it actually hit home when you're an audience member I mean hit home for me because I think about this stuff all the time and so like it really stimulated my my thinking in that way of okay I read this piece of news from Washington Post and I automatically believe it because it's a Washington Post and I believe them but then it but then is there like a bias there that I'm not seeing? And that's the interesting thing yeah, to me. Yeah. Okay, David, final word on this. Yeah. Uh, just that I tend to lean a little more towards Lindsay in this particular debate. But I think that the piece that maybe got a little bit lost for me that I think was really from what I read in your piece, Steve, and, and, and in other places as well, is sort of his animating impulse was this idea of not so much about how everyone has their own truth and multiple truths can be true, but this very American impulse of, um, of how our concerns with the truth can, can overshadow and, and totally take precedence over more important issues at hand. And the way that the Mike Daisy story in particular took the focus away from the very real problems in China with manufacturing um, and that's the piece that I wonder if, especially because that was really the focus of the like the second scene in this play, and there were two more really interesting scenes oh, after it. The third scene. Oh, the Wang Min scene. Uh, oh, no, oh, I, I mean, think the second, second third scene. scene. Well, second, third yeah. Scene. yeah I mean, but either way, like the. <laughs> so you know, if we're, not that he wrote a play to make us think again about specifically the abuses of workers in China, but I think if we get a little too wrapped up in these questions of like personal truth um we run the risk of losing sight of that other question of um when we're wrapped up in questions of personal truth what are the other perhaps more important discussions that we're not having a great question for us to ponder going forward let's move on to the jam all right the jam is a show at the crane theater which was written by and starring J. Stephen Brantley and directed by David Drake. And it 
is about uh, aging punk queer guys in the East Village in 2008, one of whom has gone straight edge, one of whom is still in the throes of crystal meth addiction, um, who happens to come from money so he can sort of fuel that addiction unendingly. And so Roderick, the straight edge, uh, responds to a panic call from Tuffer, the the tweaker, um, and comes to to basically rescue him after having cut him out for a number of months because of this pattern of of addiction and needing rescue. And it's a story about, well, that's sort of the big question. I would say it's a story about what, how much responsibility we have to the people we love when they're in need of rescue, particularly when they themselves are not willing to be or wanting to be rescued. The play goes into other things beyond that, but that that's sort of where where my focus was pulled in this. I thought it was a really interesting, uh, very intimate production that sort of went in surprising places in terms of its theatricality in that they do some really interesting things with time jumps and with direct address to the audience and with actors calling sound cues, which is funny because uh, I didn't think of it this way, but after the show I was talking about it with my boyfriend, he pointed out that that also served as sort of a de facto trigger warning um, in that the sound cues that they called were almost always before moments of violence. Um, and so it sort of gave you the heads up that someone was about to get hit or a bottle was going to get crashed or something like that. That is really interesting observation. Yeah, I thought that was really smart. I It's interesting. So I, I like this play a lot. I... I for, for a play that used a lot of these sort of Brechtian distancing techniques, I found it really pr- actually pretty emotional. I thought that it did maybe have um, not quite enough at its heart to support the length of the play. And it wasn't a long play, but it just felt like there was a lot of sort of circular arguing between like, I want to save you. I don't want to be saved, but I want to save you, but I don't want to be saved. And I think there's there's a lot of truth in that that is how those arguments often happen. And actually, that was not just two characters. There's also uh, a younger boyfriend of, of the tweaker, which, and, and the straight edge guy's mom both show up to offer sort of opposing generational views and uh, different perspectives on, uh, on what's important in terms of how, how you live your life and which battles you choose to fight and, and where you choose to um, put your energy. Uh, I feel like I'm talking in incredibly vague terms, so I'm going to throw it over to you guys. (laughs) So this play was staged at the Crane in the East Village, which, if you've never been there, is dirty, grungy theaters on East 4th Street. And many of the seats are broken. It has a, you know, to me, what feels like a historical East Village vibe. So... I thought it was a fantastic setting for this play. And totally. that is not um, an original idea. Elizabeth Vincentelli wrote about that in her New York Times review. I've been to the Crane on many occasions and um, not always really appreciated the vibe that it creates. But I, I did particularly love the marriage of this play with that venue. And so I just wanted to, I don't know, congratulate all involved for that. The other thing that I think is so interesting about this play is 
that it's broken into two halves. Like David said, it's not very long, but there is a short intermission. The first scene takes place in New York City, and it is essentially a 40-minute fight between the two, the two leads. And if you've ever seen a play with a really long fight, one of the things that I think often goes awry is that people dial up the action to 10, and then they stay there. And it's just like an assault on the audience. This is one of just, I thought there was so much nuance, and there were so many ups and downs to this fight. There was humor. Uh, like David said, there, there are circular elements to it, but that's how fights work, especially when you're fighting with somebody who has a substance abuse problem. I just thought the, the first scene, which is, like I said, a 40-minute fight, essentially, I thought it was so masterfully done. And uh, other young theater artists who want to have fights in their shows <laughs> should go see this because it really, like I said, it, it, it dials it up over and over again, which is something that I think a lot of artists really struggle with is how to, how to take the energy in the room up and then bring it down and then move it back up again to really vacillate what's happening. The, the first scene of this is, I just think, really well done. I enjoy his work and I try to go see him whenever he has something on the stage. So uh, something else I was just thinking about too um, is that, so one of the things I think that's been written about the show is that it is also, it's a it's like someone called it a coming of middle age story, mm. which I really appreciate. And it's interesting that so Lindsay and I are both around the same age and uh, we are both and slightly older, <laughs> um, which is roughly the age of the characters. Um, although this play, <laughs> but not the age of the characters when the play takes place. No, it is. They are. They are. No, I'm just saying I wasn't 40 in 2008. Right, right, right. So I was say they're all like, you know, they're turning 40, but it's 2008. Um, but I thought it was really, I, I don't know. It's one of the first times when I've seen a play about middle-aged people where I like really felt like they were talking to me, and maybe that's because they are also gay and not married and don't have kids, and mm -hmm. um, and so like their concerns about middle age are not like oh my God, I can't believe I have to bake for the PTA bake sale because that doesn't really speak to me. Um, but right, it's, so often middle-aged concerns revolve around children. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I really I really appreciated that. I also really appreciated that, you know, my radar always goes up whenever there's a queer Jewish artist talking about being a queer Jew. And uh, J. Stephen Brantley did that in, I thought, really sort of nuanced ways where like, I don't think anyone's going to see this and be like, oh, that's a Jewish play. Um, but he did talk about, the characters talked about Jewish identity as sort of one more way in which he felt like an outsider growing up and one more way that he kind of learned to, um, I think, kind of cope with being an outsider. And he talked about being like, you know, the only gay Jew named Roderick in New Mexico. And someone's like, you're probably the only gay Jew named Roderick, period. <laughs> um, and I just, I don't know, I thought that that was like, it was like a nice extra dimension that I think is sort of indicative of the way all of these characters were given extra dimensions, even uh, Brandon, who is the boyfriend character, who is, who could have been just like a very flat, like I'm a piece of meat candy. I'm, you know, a 21 year old walking around in my underwear to help lighten the mood. And they gave him uh, quite a bit of depth and nuance and not just, uh, you know, at the end, there's like a revelation about some of the stuff that he's been through, but even earlier on where, 
the assumption is that he's just like a one night stand kind of trick. And no, actually, he's someone who is invested and cares about it, um, cares about tougher. And 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 I just I don't know. I was I was impressed that that this had that that level of of depth and nuance. So on to the wolves, written by Sarah Delap, directed by Lila Neugebauer. This is being presented from by the Playwrights Realm at the Duke on 42nd Street, which, P.S., this is my first time to that theater. Me too. Really? Yeah, I'd never been there before. Uh, yeah, Theater for a New Audience used to, that used to be their main venue mm. back before they had the Pulaski Shakespeare Center. Hmm. It's very fancy. Highly recommend it if you have the opportunity. Yeah, but reception is terrible. (laughs) So bad. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, Duke. So this is a play about a high school women's soccer team. The characters are principally nine young females. Uh, Couldn't believe I was seeing that on stage. It was amazing. Um, And it is an insightful look into the lives of what young women are going through and it is not stereotypical it is not what i think often gets portrayed as young women's inner lives um they talk about a range of things including boys and their periods but also politics they have political debates on a number of issues some of which are extremely misguided but nevertheless they're trying to educate themselves about themselves and about the world that they live in. And you see fights and you see alpha girls and you see mean girls and you see religious girls and you see smart girls and you see them have conflicts and work together uh, to win soccer games. Um, All of the action takes place uh, on the sidelines of an indoor winter league of soccer. I am so grateful to Playwrights Realm for producing this play and making it part of the fall season. I think it is such a great addition to the landscape. I thought the actors were fantastic. I appreciated that they clearly, someone involved had clearly played soccer before, probably the playwright. There are some photos of her playing soccer in the playbill. But also a lot of these actresses must have soccer in their background. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think young women often grow up playing soccer. I know all my nieces uh, are enrolled in soccer programs, which I mightily endorse. But, you know, simple things like they were wearing indoor soccer cleats, not outdoor soccer cleats. Uh, they, they, their uni- they were wearing shin guards and their uniforms looked like real soccer uniforms. And they did a lot of drills that looked authentic to me. I mean, it's been quite some time since I played <laughs> soccer. But, you know, it's a tight, fast-moving, 90-minute play that I found really entertaining. What did you guys think? It was kind of like if someone took a recorder and placed it in a, in a room where my, my friends and I were talking, as my friends and I were talking when we were teenagers, mm-hmm. and all the really dumb things that we said and all the emotional thing and how emotional it all were all was. Like, uh, I'm so glad no one did that because I was so stupid back in the day. <laughs> 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 but not to say any of these girls are stupid, but it was just like, like you said, Lindsay, and as I was walking here, I, I was trying to think about like what representations I've seen of teenage girls in popular culture. And for the most part, most of the time, they're either pregnant, they're 
obsessing about boys or obsessing about their sexuality or they're just mean to each other like it's either like and you as an audience are meant to look at them from from point of pity or just like seeing them and as like this foreign thing that you're not supposed to relate to because you're an adult and you're not we're not supposed to relate to teenagers and so this is like one of those rare times where you as an audience actually felt a kind of kinship to teenage girls that we usually feel for teenage boys like you know Huck Finn and all of those fun boys in their in their teens and so that was it was so refreshing to see teenage girls talk about really regular things in their lives and they're not they're mean to each other but it's like that very particular type of female friendship meanness where it's not malicious but it's just it's it's painfully true they don't teenage girls don't when we're talk they're talking to each other they they don't parse their words they're very painfully honest and so that was really refreshing to see, and I hope a lot of a lot of the audiences take their own teenage girls, and maybe that will help them get into into the theater and to uh, soccer and to <laughs> soccer. I'm not soccer. Fa- I'm not a soccer fan, but that that looks it looks like a very physical show for the actresses. So I applaud them. They really oh get in a serious <laughs> workout. Oh my god! It's like you don't even need to go to the gym for this. Yep. Though my my small little critique is i think it's one of those times where you can put you can probably put like a few more diverse faces in there because there's only one a- actress of asian descent and she doesn't talk very much i think there, oh, there were two. two really there were when we saw it yeah wait who was the other one midori francis and let's see let's see let's see oh really oh right right okay i saw i couldn't place her but your critique stands yes yeah i have the I same mean, thought yeah it's like you they playwrights from could have put a, a few black girls in there and it wouldn't make it wouldn't make that much of a difference because all teenage girls living in America talk about the same thing. So but that's a my that's a my critique, but the rest of it was just it was just so raw and truthful and not and it doesn't subscribe to the same melodrama that you're u- used to seeing with teenage girls cuz there's this like really clever th- clever thing where in the beginning they talk about oh one of the characters had an abortion and you think that actually happened because you're used to seeing teenage girls get pregnant and have abortions and then there's this really funny line that towards the towards mid three quarters of the way through the play where she's like it was plan b and that was such a really smart critique of just like how over sexualized teenage girls are but it was great i loved it david uh, yeah, I, I second and third all of that. I, the, so a couple of things that really stood out for me is the way that the play is more or less plotless. It, mm-hmm. it's, it, there, I mean, there are things that happen, but it's not like this has, has to happen, so this has to happen, so this has to happen. Um, so instead, it really becomes this interesting character study. I, don't, I can't think of the last time I saw something that so successfully, simultaneously gave us so many fully formed characters that we really felt like we by the end i felt like i knew who each and every one of those women were and that was great um and they to me also really uh i mean maybe i'm just so old now that i I can't tell the difference but like they were convincingly teenagers to me um i mean a lot of these actresses are right out of college so they're close enough anyway um but it didn't feel like watching uh you know like 30-year-old people try to pretend they're in high school, and I appreciated that. Um, I also really loved that, particularly in the beginning, and it sort of, this sort of faded away as the play went on, but there were a lot of scenes with 
overlapping conversations where depending on where you were sitting on the theater in the theater you might hear mm-hmm. entirely different things and get a totally different sense of the play or who the most important characters are um which is something that i've seen in other plays but uh, i always fascinates me i can't imagine how the writers write that i can't imagine how they rehearse and direct that but it works so well and this director lila uh no, uh, is not someone whose work I've seen before, but I'm really excited that she is working on new plays with both Brendan Jacob Jenkins and Annie Baker. Yes, that stood out to me as well. Uh, and it totally mm-hmm. makes sense. Like now having seen this, I can see how her sensibility would match with their sensibilities. Are those the two plays by those two playwrights coming up at Signature Theater? I believe so. Mm-hmm. I did not know Annie Baker wasn't working with... Um, Sam Gold on that play. That's yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Sam Gold's too busy doing um, Othello, I think. Yep. Yeah, Othello and um, the other thing that just there for new audience. Hamlet. Is he? Is he the one doing Hamlet? No, that, well, well, that got canceled and maybe moved to the public. Probably moved right. to the public. Yeah. yeah. Love that controversy. <laughs> so ridiculous. So ridiculous. Yes, I um, I'm excited to see more of her work as well. I yeah. thought this. I think this play is deceptively simple looking but actually very complex to direct for partially the reasons you talked about but like that there is so much choreography in this play if you think about what they're doing as dancing instead of like stretching and playing and a sport oh my gosh this is basically a dance piece Mm -hmm. this is a very calm there are so many moving parts to this piece that it's very impressively simplistically presented and there's that one scene that is basically a ballet Mm -hmm. um where it's a wordless like angry dance of Mm -hmm. of practice uh that was uh lizzie jutilla right yeah Yeah. uh who again just like she doesn't have a lot of dialogue but she makes a huge impression and Mm -hmm. particularly in that scene which Mm -hmm. is just like a tour de force of movement yeah, frustrated movement too, and it's like it's the same movement they were they were doing before, but just like ratcheted up. So it was wonderful. Um, the thing that was interesting is I got an advanced copy of the script, and it was just so hard. I didn't read it because it was just so hard to read because the characters don't have names; they have numbers, mm-hmm. and which is really interesting. But because then it's not like you call them by you as the audience call them by their numbers. I just recognize them by their faces, and it makes you realize that these can really be any teenage girls and like you don't really need to give them I mean you know women should have names (laughs) (laughs) and they do do. call them names in the play yeah but is it but they it's a it's a purposeful device because late in the play something happens to one of the women and they don't tell you who it is because we don't really know their names. We only know their numbers. And so you spend this last scene sort of watching as one by one they show up trying to figure out which one mm-hmm. it happened to. Uh, and I thought that was such a thrilling device. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. On to Mechanics of Love. So Mechanics of Love is by Dapika Guha, whose work I've, whose name I've been hearing quite a bit because um, she's come up in the Kilroy's list. Do I need to explain what that is on this podcast? I think people know it people by now. People should know. Okay. If not, Google it. Yeah. So this year, one of one, one of her plays called The Art of Gaman was the most, was the number one most voted plays on the Kilroy's list. So I've never seen a work of her because she, of hers. And so like, 
this is one of the biggest productions she's had in New York, so I was really excited to finally see it. And summary, it's basically a love story with four characters, and it's kind of... Do you, remember, do you guys remember that movie Closer by Mike Nichols? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, directed by Mike yeah. Nichols. Wasn't that a play before it was a movie? It was a play, yeah. who's, uh, and I can't, can't remember who wrote it, but it was basically like two, two couples, and they kind of like recoup decouple recouple in different configurations it was this was kind of like that but funny and also really absurdist so in yes. one so so basically this married this married man named um glenn he he forgets things he has a sh- short-term memory loss i guess well he and forgets people he forgets people and he falls in love with this he's married and so he falls in love with this ballerina named francesca and because he forgot he was married he marries her and now he has two wives and then and then his his wife fi his other wife fozzy falls, falls in love with francesca too so they become like a threesome and then francesca falls in love with with the mechanic named George. So it, it, it reconfigures itself, and it seems like the action takes place over a span of 10 years, though you don't really know that because there's no changing of costumes. It's a very sparsely... Um, it's a very sparse set. It's only two pieces, a chair and a lad- stepladder. Well, I think most of the play takes place over a very short amount of time, and then there's a 10-year jump when, when they roll out the, the uh, AstroTurf. Maybe? When I was reading the script, I had I had no. There's well, no indication about, to me. Oh, we haven't seen you in years. We haven't heard from you in years, mm. which is weird because they live in the same town. <laughs> you guys are looking at me to like make a judgment. No, I, I mean that's yeah. just, that, that, is, that, that was my perception as it was. Happening. I, I just assumed like all this action was happening over like a long span of time, just because like the realistic part of my brain is thinking, well, you can't really recouple and decouple that fast, so it must take a while, technically, yeah. but. And so I was really excited to read it and see it. And this is one of those times where it's a bit, um, it was a bit dis- disappointing just because it, while like the direction, like Elena um, uh, Roz, I think her name is, was, is the director. Um, it's from two by four productions, which produces plays by women fe- and featuring women protagonists. And, she I, I read the script and so in comparison to the script like the production like really like elevated the action to make it seem really absurd and, and made you kind of buy into it as as an audience member when each of these things were happening because when you're reading the script it just feels like whiplash it's not a fun experience for me so but you did yeah. like the script when you read it not really oh not I really. like no I didn't like the script when I read it so I liked it more on stage oh okay I thought you were saying the reverse I'm sorry Okay, so you preferred the production to, to having just read the script. Basically, yeah. Okay. And I, th- I think it was just one of those times where it was just a whole lot of, a whole lot of nothing <laughs> to me. It, like, I, I understand what Topeka was trying to do in terms of just like making a commentary on love and how it's something that you really, like it comes and it goes in like really crazy ways and you really can't, you, it's not, you can't predict it most of the time. But I think if I had felt any emotional connection to the characters or if they weren't such caricatures slash archetypes, I think the point may have been could have been made better. And I don't know if if how you guys felt about that. I put this in the I'm glad I saw it category. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel any emotional connection to the play itself. And honestly, absurdism is often lost on me as is metaphor. 
I couldn't understand <laughs> what role the black cat played throughout this play. It comes up many times. Same. Not in a realistic sense, but in a, like, characters are talking about the role of this cat. And I was like, what does this cat mean? I didn't understand that. And then the cat dies, I think? Or, like, uh, it, well, something someone happened. dies as a result of maybe seeing the cat right. cross the street. I well, mean, you know, a black cat crossing your yeah, path is supposed to be bad luck. luck. But earlier, yeah. the cat's has a role in the connection with the car. There's a, right. also, a, it, I don't know if you'd call this a metaphor, but there's a mechanical theme that runs through it. Mm-hmm. How do cars work? How does love work? What is the mechanic what are the mechanics of, this? of death? And it was all kind of going over my head, but I'm glad to have had an introduction to this playwright. And it was by no means a waste of my time. I'm glad I saw it. Same, um, same. But I'm not sure that it gelled, or it, at least in my mind, that I really understood it. So the word that kept coming into my head when we were watching it was iterative. It felt um, almost fractal in its structure in that um, every scene seemed to build on the one previously, but not in a plot sense, more in a taking those elements and reconfiguring them almost algorithmically. Um, And I sort of wonder if there's a way to like draw this out in a diagram that would look like a fractal. That's Hmm. And and I think because... I don't know if it took place in Russia or if it, because it sounded like their street name was German right. to me. I thought it was German. But I know the playwright lived in Russia for a while and I feel like Russia kept coming up in the discussions of this play that I was reading. Well, Francesca's Russian. Okay, yeah. yeah. So I don't know, this, that also sort of put math, I mean, German also, Germany is a place that I think of as like, you know, graphs and math and whatever, which is maybe not fair. <laughs> um, but but for, for what, and because of mechanics, right? So like this, the whole mechanical talking about what are the mechanics of this, I I feel like there was something in the structure of the play that was trying to also be mechanical in a way that wasn't, wasn't crystal clear to me, but started to peek out. And I feel like the cat sort of represented the opposite of like the ways in which superstition or chance or nature, um, sometimes disrupts mechanics. Hmm. Um, you know, I also, I, this was a play I, I came away sort of, admiring it but not loving it i felt like oh this is a play that i bet people for whom it is more their thing would really like it it's just not quite my thing i also this was in a a very small theater with audience sitting on four sides which is my least favorite theater configuration (laughs) it is also so difficult for a lighting designer to light that show i was sitting right in the crosshairs of a very bright spotlight and it did very much interrupt my viewing on several occasions now i think what you're talking about with the mechanicalness of the entire thing i think that was almost the point in the commentary of love which which is it kind of falls apart in the same way and then it comes it comes together again in almost the same way so like the repetitive nature of those scenes kind of made that point to me but my issue was that after a while it's kind of like caught after a while it just becomes like an intellectual exercise Mm -hmm. right and for nine and for 90 minutes like i need a little i mean with caught there was like the whole like surprise element which really helps propels you but there's nothing there's none of that in this play and so after a while it becomes really tedious and it becomes like a oh okay so who's gonna who's gonna you know come together next and like what's gonna happen and so there's no like forward progression of character 
I, indeed, I'm really glad that we are having a discussion about caught in the same episode with mechanics of love because it makes me feel like, oh no, I can understand absurdism. I can, it can communicate to me. Well, I wouldn't call caught absurdism. There are elements of it that bit. are. That's the second scene with the melodrama. Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So, and, and I'm always discounting my opinion when it comes to absurdist shows because it rarely speaks to me, but then at times it can. So I take solace in that. Okay, let's move on. To oh Aubergine, all right. Aubergine is uh, the season opener, right, at Playwrights Horizon. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a new play by Julia Cho, who uh, previously wrote uh, the Language Archive, which I have not seen, but is uh, cited by one of my friends as his favorite play that he's seen. It was a very delicious play. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was dir- directed by Akira Risky, and uh, it's a play that uh, it's funny. I sort of thought it was going to be a play about food. Uh, it's really, well, I don't like to start with that. It is also a play about dealing with um, the death of a parent and sort of questions of identity and identity across generations and mortality and all sorts of big things. And the plot or the story of the show is that there is a young man named Ray who is a chef who at the start of the play is taking his father home from the hospital basically to die at home in hospice although he doesn't realize until a little bit further on that that's actually what's happening uh, because because the doctors so dance around the actual language of death and hospice and there's a hospice nurse uh, played by Michael Potts named Lucian who um was, who was a refugee who came to the United States uh, and ended up becoming a hospice nurse who sort of helps give him some perspective on all of these things. And his um, once and future girlfriend, Cornelia, played by Sujin Kim, um, who he has basically uh, abandoned while dealing with his sick father um, and then needs to reconnect to because she's the only person in his life who speaks Korean fluently enough to get in touch with his uncle back in Korea, played by just Stephen Yang. I think I missed to say that Ray is played by Tim Kang and his dad is Stephen Park. And, uh, you know, I, I like this play. I don't think I loved it as much as other people did. For me, it was very hard to not compare it with War by Brendan Jacob Jenkins, which is mm. another like play dealing with a dying parent and uh, kids who are sort of uncomfortable with that relationship and that responsibility and uh, and foreign uh, relatives. And like there were just, it, there were a lot of very, in some ways superficial and in some ways not so superficial connections between these two plays, um, which I think made it hard for me to just give this play a reading on its own. Um, it started with a, a, a fairly lengthy monologue about food uh, performed by Jessica Love, who we then basically don't see until the very last scene of the play. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what that had to do with anything. When it did finally come back, it was actually very beautiful, and I loved the last scene quite a lot. Um, but it was it was very almost distracting to me how much just how much time that took up at the beginning of the play to then not come back and sort of linger there and it, it maybe prevented me a little bit from fully engaging with what was happening trying to figure out with how that connected there were some very 
very beautiful things uh, in particular with dealing with the multiple languages um uh, often when characters spoke in Korean it was there were supertitles projected on the stage but not always um and I think the choices of when things were and were not translated was very smart and when you uh, you know it also helps you know identify with different characters in each scenes based on who is understanding and who isn't um so that's I don't know I feel like I'm sort of talking around this play what what do y'all think what did you think deep Okay, uh, so this is another play that I've read before I've seen it because that's just my job these days. <laughs> and, well, I loved it on the page. I think it was about 10 minutes too long on stage. Like, the, like I just kept expecting it to end and then it didn't. And so that was kind of frustrating because I think, I think it could have ended a lot earlier than it did. So there's this other um, metaphor about soup. And, and Ray's uncle... Comes comes to America and brings a, and and says that you have to make the soup for your dad and like maybe then like he'll change his mind while dying because I mean that's it, 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 it's a silly little thing but it's, it's so Ray makes Ray makes a soup and his dad doesn't want to eat it but it's this real but it's this metaphor of how food can be a link between generations even when you don't speak the same language or have vastly different life stories and even if you're not in touch with like the place that you came from like I'm just gonna use like my own personal experience like I'm I'm Vietnamese I have a lot of Vietnamese friends and not all of them speak Vietnamese fluently but what they can speak is the name of the food and so there's this there's this really beautiful thing that Julia does which is talk about how just about like the emotional resonances of food and how we and how like when everything else becomes lost like that's what that's what's going to remain because <laughs> you can cook what your mom what your grandmother cooked but you probably can't speak the language she's spoken so there's that there's there's that really beautiful thing and i think she julia because she hasn't written in five years like this like i just i was just so glad to be in her world of like these characters who speak in beautiful long passages with and, and with like beautiful like sentence configurations and metaphors and talking about their their life in in a very lyrical way and so i i really enjoyed it even if i did think it was too long and i also have to um point out two things that are, that are kind of silly but i found amusing uh, the scenic design by Derek McLean. There is he uses he he, he puts in these. Uh, so the scenic design is basically it the set revolve revolves closes kind of. closes yeah, and then like it opens open, closes, yeah. yeah but in a circular way yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so whenever it opens it's um it's Ray's dad's dining dining room and there are the and there are these chairs like these wooden chairs with like wood filigreed with a wood filigreed back and like I swear every single Asian Asian household has those chairs. <laughs> <laughs> my parents and all of my uncles and aunts have those chairs in their house. So so that was that was really amusing. And this, and then when I saw Ray's dad, like he even though he's dying, like he gets to talk a couple times throughout the play, like stand up and talk and you know remember his life. And I was just so struck as I was watching him that you do not look old enough to be dying. And then I, I just had to look up like how old the actor Stephen Park is, and he's 65, so technically he kind of is, but he just looks really good for his age, guys. Look, Alpha. And Deep declares 65 the age at which you are on your, on your way to death. 
Uh, listen, I also think there's something to be said that like when I'm, he's standing up and speaking, it's not necessarily like because that's not realistic space. Like he doesn't necessarily need to look like he's on his deathbed. He, you know, as he's speaking to us from this sort of other space. Oh no, that that makes sense because he plays himself as a young man, so he has to be able to occupy those two spaces simultaneously. And when he's lying in bed, you really can't tell if he's 65 or if he's 85. So there's that aspect. I was just really amused because I just kept thinking the entire time, he looks too young to be dying. <laughs> he looks really good for 65. I'm just gonna say I'm just gonna say that. The only thing I want to add is this is my first time seeing Tim King, who played the lead Ray. Um, according to his bio, this is his Playwrights Horizons debut, but I think possibly also his New York debut because it doesn't have any other New York credits, only regional ones. I thought he was so great. Totally. Oh, so good. I want to watch him in more. I want to see this character, this chef. I, I want him to have his own sitcom. <laughs> like I just, I thought he was so magnetic. I just... It, uh, in all parts, when he got mad, when he was sad, when he was happy, I just, I adored watching him. And he really carried me through this play, which is somewhat methodical and plodding at times. But he kept my attention going, and I was engaged whenever he was the center of attention. My only complaint is that there's a line in the play where he refers to him as himself as being fat. <laughs> and he's not fat. And like, and no, no, I mean, no. he's not skinny. No, he's, but he's, he's not like but, lanky. No, but the character. I mean, the character talks about himself as yeah, like. Yeah, he says. I actually thought. As I like mean, very I, fat. I had no, no, no. I don't think of him as, as very fat. I that line, however, is very funny, and his delivery on it is excellent because he says something like "I'm fat as fuck" and drink right. a shit ton or something. It's well, really funny. I mean, he looks like a chef. I I saw that guy in a restaurant in a chef's outfit. I wouldn't blink my eyes for a second he has a chef's body he's not fat but he's not uh, all I'm saying I is mean, that, uh, is Asian, that when, yeah. in the same podcast where we're calling out the soccer player for only having two diverse faces if that's a that's terrible two people of color yeah. um i think that we can say that here's a role that was written for a fat person that's not played by a fat person that's all i want to say well i don't sense. well actually that there's this cultural thing of because whenever i go home my mom calls me fat and i'm not fat in any Mm-mm. No. no. <laughs> so there's this thing, uh, there's a very criti- critical thing in Asian culture of like if, you, if you're more than, you know, a size two or four, you're fat. So there's that too. I don't, I don't know if that's something that Julia Cho was referencing. There's a referencing. cultural disconnect here. <laughs> I know. But it's, but it's one of those plays that's also about, you know, like, like I did like Asian, like cultural identity issues, but I don't think that was quite. Like she, she didn't, she, she didn't hammer it home the way, the way that she could that it's not hitting you over the head with it like nor it nor which in the way that it normally would in other plays which i really appreciate right um, i mean there was a cultural specificity but it didn't feel like we were being like taught intro to korean american culture exactly or people struggling with their korean americanness it's right. just about like how these people deal with the situation they just happen to be korean which is nice yeah 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 Okay, our final show is called Bears in Space. It's part of the first Irish festival, and it's on at 59E59. This is a puppet show. We don't cover a lot of puppet shows on the Max Moo podcast. Do you guys even think, like puppets? I don't really care for puppets, but I love this show. Just talking about it, I have a huge smile on my face. It's so damn weird. Um, so... The details to start with, um, it's by a theater company called Collapsing Horse. It's directed by Dan Colley, 
and it's written by Owen Quinn. So basically, this is a story about these two bears who are on a spaceship and they've been cryogenically frozen for 700 years and they wake up and you know they face a crisis and so they have to go to metropolis that is of course lorded over by an evil master and uh, try to get some additional energy for their spaceship. Really, the plot of this is so irrelevant. What you need to know is that it is just so fantastically weird. I think I tweeted about it after the show and called it like puppets on acid. The actors are like insanely charming. They're very talented. The whole vibe is this sort of shabby found objects set with all of the puppets sort of appearing to have been like discarded stuffed animals that we'll have been well loved. <laughs> so repurposed and made into puppets. And there's a variety of puppetry. There are, uh, you know, shadow cutouts. Um, there's that thing you see in every puppet show, which is the stick figure sort of standing still while the background moves. There's a diorama. And then there are the traditional, you know, hand puppets. This is a short show. It's only 75 minutes. Ooh. And it's just so weird and funny and entertaining. And it doesn't really matter that, at least from my perspective, I think the reason I don't enjoy puppets or cartoons or graphic novels is because, like, I cannot personify these inanimate objects. But here that didn't matter because it was so weird. Well, and the actors are right there. So you can also look at the actors. Yes. And one of the actors plays more of a character himself or several characters. He's acting in the traditional sense. That, that I actually wrote in my um, uh, notes during the show about the actor who actually is well known, not to me, but to some people, Jack Gleason. Um, he's on a little show called Game of Thrones. Um, I can't believe you don't watch Game of Thrones. I, I don't either. I don't have HBO. What is wrong with you people? God. So I, the thing I wrote in my notes is like, this guy is really committing to the bit here. Like, <laughs> he, there was no hesitation. He was fully absorbed. This is during, um, he, he plays the sort of evil overlord. Oh the, my God, it's so appropriate. And then he plays this weird character who I think's name is either Skin or Skim. I know Skin. Skinned? Skin with an N. Okay, I yeah. think that's right, but it was not 100% clear. I was just like, oh my God, this guy has completely whacked out of his mind. It was so strange. And then in the production we saw, and this will never happen again, but there was a small technical issue at the end. And this, one of the actors slash puppeteers just went with it. it was and so he was good. doing such an amazing job. And, and one of the other actors broke and everybody applauded. And it was just, it was so great. What did you think, David? So uh, I liked it too. Maybe not quite as gushingly as Lindsay did, um, but also it was one of those nights where like I didn't eat enough before the show, so I was super hungry <laughs> and it makes it really hard to just give yourself over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's live theater for you. Um, uh, you know, when, when people asked me about it, I kept describing it as silly in the Monty Python sense of that mm -hmm. word. Um, it's almost like children's theater for adults. Like it is not children's theater. I would not take a kid to this show. Not because it's inappropriate. I just think it would be over their heads. I think there's 
some foul language. There is some always, of course, there has to be puppet sex. Although it's very demure if you've seen something like Avenue Q. <laughs> um, or Hannah God. But, but it, mm-hmm. but that, it that did have... Graphic. But it had that sort of like children's theater vibe to it, which I love and which we don't get to see often as adults with shows for adults and with you know adult content. Um, you know, if you ask me what is the point of the show... I would say it's to entertain. You know, like yeah. I don't I don't know that there was any like deep meaning to the story and I don't think it needed one. I didn't think there was any meaning behind it. I didn't take any moral of the story away. Right. And like which is a little weird because it's sort of presented as a fairy tale, mm-hmm. but it's also there's a little bit of a framing device. Um and yeah. it is clear from the framing device that the people telling us this story are not 100% there. Yeah. Um so so that sort of set us up to not necessarily get you know, a, a fairy tale conclusion to our fairy tale story. Um, yeah, totally fun. If you're looking for something silly and light, I actually think this is an ideal matinee show. Mm. Um, I feel like this would be a great thing. Like, go have like, uh, you know, a bottomless brunch, go see the show, then go spend, you know, the afternoon in the park. <laughs> like, it's just, it was fun. It was great. Cool. And it's part of, do we say it's part of this uh, yeah. Irish Theater Festival? Yeah, first Irish or Irish um, first. And, it, and it's great because it totally feels like a festival show but also like a good festival show (laughs) no i'm trying to see it because well i couldn't see it this week but no i'm I'm trying to see it because i'm a big game of thrones fan and jack leeson game of thrones plays he's no longer on it because his character died but he played like the most hated character on the show like it was like a universe it was like republicans republicans democrats like you you can all agree jack leeson's character on game of thrones is the worst what what was his character's name Uh, joffrey okay he's uh this he played the son the uh a, a boy king whose parents are actually siblings so yeah, and was kind of a sadist slash megalomaniac. It was great. Huh. So, feels very appropriate. He's playing an evil overlord in this play. Well, please go see it and then tell us what you think about it. Hopefully, we haven't steered you wrong. Hopefully, I haven't oversold it. I mean, it's bears in space. If you like bears and you and you like space, and that's honestly that is also the show's tagline. It's called Bears in Space. Bears that are in space. <laughs> I, I these it. people are probably so fun to get a beer with. Like that's the kind of performers there are. They're just clearly having the time of their lives up there. It reminded me a lot of the same kind of vibe that you get from a fiasco theater company mm-hmm. show, even though like mm-hmm. they're obviously starting from much more uh, refined texts. Mm-hmm. But the same kind of like all hands on deck. Let's throw everything at the stage and see what sticks and make it fun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we are like so over time, but let's talk about what folks have on their agendas coming up. Uh, well, tonight I'm going to see a local production of Assassins, which uh, is playing at Hunter College, uh, which I'm excited about. Uh, otherwise, my week this week is all focused on the show that I'm working on, which is Saturday night at the Lori Beachman Theater at 7 p.m. Larry Owens sings the Burnett Peters songbook. Uh, come on by. It's only 20 bucks plus the $20 minimum. It's going to be a lot of fun. We have some great special guest stars. And uh, if you do come, come say hi. Awesome. Deep. Uh, so on Thursday, I'm so excited. I'll be dressing up for this. I am going to the opening night of, of part one of Taylor Mac's 24 decade history of popular music. If you haven't heard of it, you should get tickets anyway, because it is going to be amazing. 
amazing. Uh, Taylor Mac is doing a twenty. Will be doing a twenty-four hour concert on the eighth, and before that, Judy, which is Taylor's preferred pronoun, will will do three-hour installments for eight. What's three divided by twenty-four? Eight nights. Yeah, over eight nights, and so it's gonna be the first night. And as each installment ends, they're going to lose a musician and lose a, a backup singer and dancer. So basically, it's like just a, it's going to be an exercise in endurance. I can't go to the marathons. I'm only going to three of three of the concerts. But I saw I saw I saw a six hour version at New York Live Arts last year. And it's it's so it's so joyful. Taylor sings a popular songbook songs, but it's it's a um but through a it's like a history lesson but through with a queer edge of like trying to see like trying to see like what queer relationships were like in in the past and trying to bring bring to light things that we didn't know about certain historical figures so Ann Taylor wears some amazing costumes designed by Machine Dazzle and they're they're kind of kitschy and elaborate. elaborate and makes reference to the decade that Taylor's singing about and but but in a really creative way and the and with headpieces attached. So there's that. And yeah. Are you guys seeing Marie and Rosetta at Atlantic? No. Don't have tickets yet, but I've heard wonderful things about it. I'm hearing wonderful things about it too, and it escaped my attention because I don't see everything at the Atlantic, and honestly, I'm not a huge Neil Pepe fan. So mm. he's the director. It's written by George Brandt, um, but it's oh. the story of Sister Rosetta Tharp, and it has an amazing cast: Rebecca Naomi Jones and Keisha Lewis. Um, Unfortunately, I think we're now in the space of having to pay full price $65 tickets and up for that show, which I'm not sure I'll be able to make it to. But um, I've heard fantastic early buzz about it. So otherwise, that's sort of on my watch and try to find a ticket to. But otherwise, I'm just seeing shows that we'll be talking about in two weeks, which include Underground Railroad. I'm seeing that. Yay. The Civilians have a show at BAM coming up in two weeks called The Undertaking. We're also seeing Nat Turner at New York Theater Workshop. Same. And then we're going to the opening night of the Crossing the Line Festival, which is actually a screening of the um, Life and Times of... What is that show called? I just call it Life, Life and Times. Times. is from Nature Theater of Oklahoma. Yeah, so they're doing, as oh. part of the festival, they're doing screenings of uh, the different, the final three segments, I think, uh, seven, eight, and nine. So we're seeing that. All right, thank you guys so much. This was a lot of fun. Yay! Yay! Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Max Moo Theater and Performance Podcast. We have merch, coffee mugs and tote bags printed with some of your favorite Maximu-isms. All proceeds go to upgrading our equipment. You can get to our merch store from Maximu.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And finally, if you have questions, comments, or contrary opinions, you can find us all on Twitter. Maximu is at Maximu. David is at It's D. Lovey. Deep is at Deep Thought, and I'm at Lindsay Behrens. We'll be back in two weeks with more discussion of theater beyond Broadway. See you then. 
Theatrical Media.